about not terribly long before I met you, there was I was also working with a, a therapist. And after hearing my story, she said, you seem lost. And that's exactly how I felt. And so to, to get from there to here, uh, it was a journey. But the things that helped me were my wife, my family, my community, and reaching out to other people. One of the, the hallmarks of, if you want to call it religious trauma sy syndrome, and I happen to think that that's an apt title, that feeling of, I've been through something that no one else has been through and nobody understands. Well, I'm here to tell you, a lot of people have been through what you have, and they do understand, and they, they need you and you need them. I don't think I got through these things alone. I think of those Presbyterian ministers that I, I was a member of who told me, you didn't know the half of it. Actually, Calvary Temple was even worse than you know, and here's why, and here are facts that prove it. That helped me immensely to, to meet people who had been through trials and who could also help me. I didn't recover by myself. I wasn't uh, alone. And you won't recover by yourself. You need friends. You need a group. You need therapy. And don't be ashamed of any of those things. You need those things. And they, they will help. And you will heal, even if it takes a long time. That's Greg Ligon, a former member of Calvary Temple, a church in Sterling, Virginia, that has spent more than a decade ensnared in scandals about emotional, sexual, and physical abuse, controlling members and alienating them from the rest of the world. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. Greg grew up in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and came from a family that was involved in a Methodist church. After Greg moved to Northern Virginia as a teenager, the church faded into the background as he pursued other interests. In 1998, Greg was at work one day and had a book on philosophy on his desk when a colleague came up and asked what he was reading. That sparked a transformative conversation that led Greg to shift from his atheist views to embracing Christianity and attending a charismatic church called Calvary Temple that found its roots in the Assembly of God denomination. Greg attended the church from 1998 to 1998 when he was kicked out and told he was no longer welcome after he confessed to an affair with a married woman. In retrospect, Greg now says that it was a blessing because otherwise he would have never left the church. In 2008, the Washington Post published an investigative story on Calvary and its pastor, Star Scott Jr., who the paper described as a, quote, powerful and polarizing figure. The Post story revealed explosive allegations of control, abuse, trauma, and alienation of family and friends. Born in Monterey, California in 1947, Scott, a college football player, was raised in a home where they didn't practice religion. But he became born again in 1967. Scott gave up sports for religion and came to the Washington, D.C. area to become the head pastor of Herndon Assemblies of God. Eventually, he changed the name to Calvary Temple, and in 1986, 
Calvary left the Assemblies of God denomination and became independent. At that point, Scott began practicing his own form of theology that the Post described as a blend of evangelicalism and fundamentalism. The church started and stopped media ministries, opened more than 40 churches in East Africa and several other U.S. cities, including Richmond. The Post article focused mainly on the fundamentalist religious beliefs, the control the church exerted over its members, and questionable financial practices that included requiring some members to tithe up to 20% of their income. By 2016, it had become apparent that there was much more going on at Calvary Temple. Allegations emerged that Scott, once right after his wife had died, preached a sermon In that sermon, he said the book of Leviticus taught him that he was not allowed as a high priest to mourn the death of his wife, and instead he was to, quote, take a wife in her virginity. At the end of the sermon, he presented a 20-year-old candidate, and they married a week later. Another allegation emerged that two young women in the church had alleged that a member of church leadership had sexually abused them. But the cases were handled by the Loudoun County, Virginia Sheriff's Office and a deputy who was also a high-ranking member of the church. Nothing came out of the allegations. No charges were filed. And one of the victims, who was 14 at the time, was put out of the house by her family member in the church. She was dropped off at a gas station to wait for the father, who she had not lived with since she was four years old. Ex-members also reported that family members were forbidden from speaking with them once they left the church. With echoes of the raid on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, that led to the siege on the Branch Davidian compound and the death of many of the members of the denomination led by David Koresh, the ATF raided the apartment of a Calvary member in 2017 where the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives found dozens of guns that were apparently set aside for the church. Not unlike the Branch Davidians, the church also had a compound in West Virginia that Scott said would be used in the event that the persecution from the authorities became so great that they needed to flee. Perhaps the most damning story when it comes to Scott was an allegation made by his son and his son's wife in an email that was then sent to congregants. The email alleged that the pastor had molested two young nieces for years, starting in California and continuing in Virginia until the 1970s. The email read in part, quote, they were just innocent children and you abused your power and your authority. The police in Virginia declined to charge the pastor, but they referred the case to California authorities. In 2021, Kevin O'Connor, the church deacon who had been accused of abuse by the two girls earlier, was eventually charged by the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office. Former members like Greg have built a community together, bonding over their religious trauma and their desire to help people leave Calvary. Today, we're going to talk about community and loss, power in religion, the prevalence of cults hidden behind buildings that look like any other religious organization, religious trauma in general, and what happens to you emotionally and socially 
when religious leaders, the people who are supposed to guide us, our shepherds, betray us. Greg, I just wanted to thank you for coming on to have this conversation with me. Increasingly, like for me, one of the topics that I hear people talking more and more about is this idea of their relationship with God versus their relationship with religion. And, you know, it's very interesting. I had someone write me recently to say that, like, religious trauma is sort of the one form of trauma that we don't really feel as comfortable talking about. So I just really appreciate you um, being willing, I guess, to be so open about this. And, you know, like ever since we met, because, you know, we met originally because you were coming in to do some sort of like career development work and sort of life transition related working as a part of coaching. I've always felt like a really deep bond and affinity um, for you as a person. And, uh, you know, I was kind of reluctant to, to even ask you to come on to talk about these things because I didn't want to pull you back into this place. But I really, I think this can be really beneficial for people, regardless of whether they were a part of something as extreme as Calvary or they, you know, had, were in a less benign religious uh, institution or organization and had some kind of trauma. So thanks. Thanks, Greg. Hey, it's a pleasure. I'm really, I'm really glad you thought of me. And, uh, and I got to say, I, I feel the same. As a matter of fact, one thing I, I can recall about how we met, there was career transition at, at that time in my life, but there was a lot, it was even a lot more. I was dealing with some, some pretty traumatic things. And in particular, I was in, I was in therapy partially because I guess I just kind of collapsed like a heap one day and I hadn't realized quite how much my life at Calvary Temple had affected me and how much trauma I had to recover from. Uh, So yeah, I, I am happy to, to shed light on that and to, to help people who may be under the same kind of pressures or the same sort of religious trauma. It's a real thing. And people, people need to know that they're heard and that they're loved, that uh, there's a way out and a way forward. Do you, do you have any idea from your perspective about why people find it difficult to talk about? And I'm thinking about like, not even necessarily the idea of sort of stepping out and kind of ending up in conflict with the organization, but just, sort of talking to the average regular person about the topic? Um, I can think of a few things. For for one, let's let's talk let's think about a place like Calvary. And there are places like Calvary. Um, maybe the most famous example in our country was the the uh, the people's church that uh, Jim Jones founded, where people uh, learned about Jonestown Guyana and that mass suicide. That's the mass suicide with Kool-Aid, right? The one with Kool-Aid. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, what a what a disturbing. It's still short. Before 9-11, that was the worst incident with the highest amount of casualties to ever occur 
Um, Do you remember? Because as I recall, Jones was in California and the authorities had started to put pressure on him. So he took it everywhere. Yeah. Down. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. So um, that, that kind of extreme, what starts to happen is in extreme religious faith or cults, they make exit very difficult. Mm. I was, I was cons- listening to a testimony from someone who used to be in Calvary and what, while there's never a stated prohibition such as if you leave Calvary, you're going to fall back into sin and perdition. You're going to, you're going to lose your salvation or you'll never find a place like Calvary. You know, no one would ever say those words out loud, but to forbid you from leaving, they would kind of shame you or make you, or second, make you second guess or so-called gaslighting. There was, well, all right. Have you considered that if you leave Calvary, this will happen? Or why should you leave anyway? Because why would you want to leave? The word of God is here. We know you and we love you. And why would you go anyplace else? And so they make exit very difficult, either through just basically sheerly forbidding you from leaving or from making exit seem like a really bad idea. Um, Yeah. And I think probably for the for a lot of the folks who don't know about some of the bad behaviors, that can be a great motivator. And some of the people who have a clue of what the church's relationship with ex-members are mm. like, that could probably be a great motivator too. You know, like you don't necessarily know the pain of the ex-members, but when you hear a story about something like, a church member who no longer communicates with their family because their family left. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, Ca- and Calvary is um, notorious for basically forbidding parents from talking to their children if their children have left the faith or have, you know, disobeyed their teaching. And if you, in fact, have been inculcated in a place like Calvary and your indoctrination is pretty pretty severe. You have now left behind your old way of life and your friends and your families so that you're no longer connected to any other community but Calvary. So the your friends all go to Calvary and your family are all part of Calvary. Or if you've lost your mother and father, now behold your mother and father, as Jesus might have said. Say, because if you if you leave, if you're not willing to leave fathers, mothers, you're not worthy of being my disciple. So Calvary takes that to an extreme and says, "These are your fathers and mothers, and these are your parents." And then when you want to go do other activities, it's probably with someone from Calvary. Or if you want to go to the gym, well, Calvary has a gym. <laughs> um, yeah. So so it's not that you're just leaving a church, you know, like switching a church and going. You're leaving everything. Yeah. You leave. And so that does put fear into you. And then, and at some some point in time, you're going to have to wrestle with that and think, now what am I going to do? I, I'll never forget when the day came and I left Calvary. All of my friends, they were in Calvary. So I didn't have anybody to talk to. So it, it um, that wasn't that wasn't a light thing to me, you know? Yeah, because it's the... Like you mentioned that word, it's like your community and in our community is our sort of sense of belonging in the world and our 
North Star and our compass and you're giving up a lot more than a place that you go to on Sunday or Wednesday or, yeah. or what other starting from the ground up is, is not comfortable. You know, yeah. you're at, you're now you're at sea. I mean, there's no, there's no place to go. Right. I was, I, one of the things that really struck me about hearing about Calvary, because I, I don't know if I told you this, but at the time when you told me about your experience with Calvary, you know, I was living in Leesburg, which is the town over from um, Sterling. And I, as much as I read the newspaper and I educate myself and I saw clients from all over the region, I I had never heard of um, Calvary Temple. And, you know, I'd probably driven by it God knows how many how many times. But one of the things that sort of struck me about the story was this idea that, like, just down the street from me behind, you know, in these sort of like leafy streets in this sort of, you know, what we would think is this almost perfect American suburb, you know, filled with things like community centers, neighborhood pools, like middle-class living. There's essentially this organization that's operating like a cult Mm -hmm. in a place like that. You know, we think of places like Waco, Texas, or, rural places or even maybe in some cities but we don't think of like a cult sitting in the middle of what what people feel is a kind of progressive um suburban community and i i was curious is that like for you is that kind of like was it was it kind of a blinding thing like you what was it that originally caused you to like join the church and did it feel safe? I guess is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was in high school. I, I was that, I was always that, that sort of outcast kid, you know, I was in the theater and didn't have a whole lot going for me and friends and things like that. So I don't think I ever felt like I had my niche group. Um, I can remember being in, my psychology class and hearing the teacher warn us that, you know, if you are, if you are a loner, cults like to pick you out of the, of the crowd and, and, and try to recruit you to which I would say, that is, that's absurd. That'll never happen to me. I'm, I'm completely independent. I'm too smart. You know, yeah, I'm way too smart. So I was at a, at one of my, you know, dead end jobs and somebody working there with me, Noticed I was uh, on my off time. I was reading also Sprock's Zarathustra by Nietzsche. And he said, oh, what's that book about? I said, oh, um, well, it's basically that's where the, you ever heard God is dead? That's where it comes from. God is dead. And he says, uh-huh. If I gave you a book to read, would you accept that? Said, well, okay. What, what's the book? He said, this is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Mm. Which, which um, Classic. I, I, yeah. I want to say in, in, in its defense, it, that is a, wonderful book it oh, truly is yeah. uh but when someone's trying to use it to recruit you to a call then the, the, you know the bible's a wonderful book too so he was witnessing to me a lot telling me he believed in jesus and telling me you know that if if those who believed are saved and those who believe not shall be damned and that's not that's not good news i need to now at that time i i 19 years old thereabouts and i lived in Alexandria with my girlfriend, uh, didn't go to school, didn't go to college. Not a good idea. Made my dad very unhappy. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. But when someone's telling me, hey, you could join this and 
you can have you know, salvation and freedom and a community of people that love you. In spite of how fearful it was to, uh, to finally uh, attend Calvary Temple service with him and hear people for the first time in my life speaking in tongues and outwardly praising God and singing songs that they weren't found in a hymnal, it was unsettling. But at the same time, I thought, hey, these people look pretty happy. They look like they have it together. I know this is weird, but I feel kind of good, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the plunge. And so there I am, and I I I didn't even have own socks. I had like these loafers um, that you know look. I I was trying to dress up, I guess, like Don Johnson from Miami. It was the late eighties, you know. I had a mullet and everything, really long hair, and so that just to give you an example of how it felt when I did that altar call and asked Jesus into my heart and everybody just started, welcome to the family. God bless you. You're going to love it. You're going to be so happy. We're so glad you came. Uh, the following week, I believe it was somebody said, the Lord put it on my heart and gave me a box of shoes. Okay. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he saw that I, I had these like dilapidated you know, mm-hmm. loafers. And so he gave me shoes. So he, at some point in time, I remember I didn't know how to drive. Somebody from the church taught me how to drive. Uh, oh, wow. I didn't have a place to live because, you know, I can't live with in sin with my girlfriend. Somebody, you know, I, I got, got a roommate. And so my life in the church began and in earnest. And I just, that's that's, that's pretty much how I got recruited. Yeah. What, did that, what did that feel like? Like that moment where you did the altar call and that moment those moments where everyone was embracing you, did it feel like something you hadn't experienced, like in terms of connection to people or love? it certainly did. Some people have quite profound experiences when they describe being born again, and I did. I remember feeling like some kind of heavy weight was, was, was being pulled out of my body from my shoulders. And like, I felt great. And I remember thinking, I can hear the birds better. The sky looks different. And I am not the same person anymore. Mm. Something happened to me. And to be fair, that maybe that is exactly what happened to me. Um, right. I, I can only tell you that it, it felt blissful and supernatural. The life that I had in Calvary was nothing like that. It was painful and arduous, and uh, it was usually sad. But that particular experience, yeah, it was otherworldly, and it was it was uplifting. I was going to ask. I'm just curious about what was your religious experience like before before joining Calvary. The first time I ever saw a portrait of Jesus, I was about three years old. It was at Liberty Grove United Methodist Church in Burtonsville, Maryland. Mm. And um, I thought that was my Uncle Billy. You see, my Uncle Billy. (laughs) This is in the late 1970s when a lot of people looked like Late 60s, 60s, early 70s, (laughs) thereabouts. So my Uncle Billy was kind of a hippie and still is, come to think of it. And uh, (laughs) I don't think he'd mind being called that. Um, I thought that that portrait of Jesus that was my Uncle Billy. So I went to Sunday school at, at... at Liberty Grove. But after, you know, nine or 10, I grew bored with it and had no religious faith. My father and I moved 
to Fairfax around 1978. Sounds yeah. So you went from the Maryland suburbs to the Virginia suburbs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, despite despite being born in San Diego when my dad was in the Navy, I'm really a DC, Maryland, Virginia kind of guy. I've always been in Northern Virginia. You know. Hail to the Redskins and all that. <laughs> you, know. you can run, but you can't hide. Yeah, exactly. It's so rare, by the way. That's an interesting thing that I didn't even think about. You as somebody who grew up in the Washington suburbs, a lot of people who don't know the D.C. suburbs don't know how transient it is. Yeah. It's not like a normal – like it's very rare for me to run into somebody who grew up in – in dc yeah same here well and as like someone born and raised in dc i've i can probably think of people like maybe count on one hand people i've right. met because you tend to be someone who works there or you tend to be someone who moved there but i don't know very many people who were born and raised in the district let alone you know the north of virginia or maryland you know yeah because they tend to come from somewhere else yeah, and it's a different experience. Like I grew up when I was in Georgia, I grew up with the the kids that I was I came to the Northern Virginia area when I was in high school. But all the kids I went to elementary school, for the most part, we were all there every year. We mm-hmm. all went to middle school together. Even though I left, we stayed in touch uh when we all went off to high school, but we grew up with the same group of people. We had a sense of community, if that makes sense. And I think in the D.C. area, because it's so transient, like growing up, you know, like every year some group of your friends are rotating out every – maybe you don't get that same sense of belonging that other people – Right. You tend to – people you grew up with in, in high school tend to leave, you know. They tend to find some other way of life and to, they tend to leave. Like uh, they became, I don't know. They wanted to go into entertainment. Well, there's nothing here. So they left and went to whatever, Nashville, New York, Los Angeles, whatever. So they tend to leave. And yeah, I, I can't think of too many people I've known all my adult life or something like that. Yeah. Who you who you sort of like, yeah, grew up with and had that. So it must have been kind of powerful because a place like Calvary probably offered that. If yes. That makes sense. Oh yeah, and, and you think you know, like um, I was a musician, and I remember one of my best friends was also a guitar player, and so we spent a lot of time camaraderie playing music together, and that kind of stuff. You couldn't find it without a place like Calvary because Calvary kind of creates that sort of fish fishbowl experience where your your whole world is in that fishbowl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing like it. it it's um, it is it's quite unsettling and painful when when it's all gone. Yeah, I I remember. I think it was a little bit after we had met. I remember reading this local newspaper article. It was 2016 when the first women really sort of like got headlines. Yeah. Um, for allegations of like physical, emotional, and then later we found out sexual abuse. And then out of the woodworks, you know, like protesters started showing up in front of the church, like, you know, you know, when they were doing their Easter egg hunts or camps or, 
they did this thing that I have yet to see at any other church, but they used to have the car shows. <laughs> and, oh my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they're all up and down. Yeah. And I imagine all of those things were like great recruitment um, tools. But when the protesters showed up, like, you know, I think it came a little bit more into the public consciousness in this area that yeah. there were challenges. But my understanding is it was going on long before 2016. Like, what was your experience in the church? Like? So let me, let me see if I can recall. So I left on very, 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 very bad terms in 1998. And, and I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell the story. I'm not afraid. I, I was... I was working uh, in DC and there was, there was a girl working there and she was married, but we were, we were attracted to each other. And so I had a very, very brief, not very pleasant experience. I, I had an affair with a married woman and the church found out and they, they put me out to pastor. Do you know how they found out? Oh, I told them, I, I said, listen, I'm having a really hard time and I know I'm in sin and I really want help. And, uh, mm. yeah, at the, uh, yeah, boy, oh boy, that was the last thing I should have done. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's, oh, but it like seems like the obvious thing, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're going through this thing that's painful. You're yeah. going through this difficult thing. You're very conflicted about it. Yeah. And, you know, the message is sort of like confess your sins, get help. Like, sure. And maybe, and maybe, Hey, you know, Maybe they didn't think I was sincere. Maybe they didn't think I really wanted to change. I don't know. Or maybe it just had been something that they were expecting of me and said, okay, I knew this was going to happen. Get get out of here. Well, then I basically went and I became kind of a, uh, a pilgrim. And I went through a lot of different experiences. I did fall in love and meet the woman I'm still married to. So that's great. Mm. Um and we we tried going to places like uh, neo pagan festivals and didn't <laughs> quite re- really didn't feel at home there. Um, you let the pendulum swing in the opposite direction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man, you know because you think, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And I didn't read a Bible for almost ten years after I left Calvary because I couldn't wow. bear it. I I was afraid. Wow. When I afraid of I, what? Well, the first. My first experience when I was all alone and I and I didn't have any place to go, uh, I remember having dreams every night about people from Calvary. Oh, and, wow. Or experiences I had there. And that, that went on for months. Mm. Um, and the Bible, because I had known such a repressive existence and it tended to be in the context of a scripture, I thought, well, then I don't want to read it anymore because all it does is bring me pain. So mm. I don't want to read it anymore. So it's almost like a trigger. Right? Yeah. 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 So somehow uh, throughout that experience, I think at 2015, 2016, I was still in, uh, I still had a Facebook account and somehow somebody reached out to me. I think it might've been a former member. I'm pretty sure it was someone mentioned in the article named Michelle Freeman and discussed with me, okay, there's a lot going on at Calvary that you may not be aware of. Mm. And then somehow I found out about the article about the allegations against one of their deacons and his adopted niece or adopted daughter. I, I Forgive me. I can't remember. Exactly. That's Kevin O'Connor who was That's charged. Kevin O'Connor, yeah, who, I, was charged. who I was acquainted with and his 
daughter who I also knew as a child. Mm. And when I learned that there, that those allegations had been discarded by the Loudoun County deputy sheriff, by the way, one of the Loudoun County deputy sheriffs was a member of Calvary. Right. Um, in fact, um, prominent member, right? Prominent member. So then I remember having this experience of my heart felt like it was breaking and I never, I, I, I never felt any, I never realized how bad it really was there. I knew that I didn't like it and I knew that they were hard on people and I knew it was repressive and I knew that there was some fiduciary wrongdoing uh, mm. from Star Scott. I learned that from other ministers is, yeah, he's up to no good and I'll tell you why. And that I knew. But what I didn't know is that it went even further and that children, young young women were undergoing painful experiences like sexual abuse. I didn't know. Mm. But when it when I heard about it, it just my heart just sank. And I remember then I started reading the scriptures again and talking about shepherds that were hurting the sheep and Somebody in that community from the Facebook group, I think, about exposed Calvary Temple said, yep, I read that very same one. And it just dawned on me, okay, this is something I should I should check out, and this is something I should take part in. So I went to one of those early protests in front of the co- congregation, mm. and I was seeing people that I hadn't seen for over 10 years. And uh, one of them who... In fact, a couple of them were children when I knew them. And they were, uh, one of them has a, a YouTube channel. He was, his father was one of the, the piano players for that church. And he was also an ex-member of Calvary because of things that he experienced there. And I remember seeing them when they were children. And one of them told me, oh, I remember you. He said, you do? And I didn't know who it was, but said, didn't you used to babysit me or something? Or didn't I used to... I used to come to your house when my uncle was babysitting. Was, oh my goodness, you're that little boy? And now they're this tall <laughs> adult mm-hmm. person. But there were kids that had been through that ministry who were able to expose not just the secrets about um, Kevin O'Connor's proclivities, but also of Pastor Scott's past sins that had never been brought and discussed. So that was really those young people who were growing up, who were exposed to things, who overheard their, you know, because we all think that the children really aren't listening, but they are. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, so so as a child in an environment, you're probably exposed to a lot of things where adults forget that you can process it or someday Mm -hmm. you put it together. And I was going to ask you, it's sort of about that, to that point of like uh, Pastor Scott's, you know, Star Scott's wrongdoing, like, you know, those women had come forward with their own allegations. They weren't directly against him. But I, I remember reading the story that really, really struck me. It was It was 2002, apparently, these events happened. But, you know, Scott's wife, Janet, she's dying. You know, uh, they're in their 50s at that particular point, but it really struck me that he he had supposedly claimed from the pulpit that the book of uh, Leviticus forbade him from um, mourning 
the death of, because he was a high priest and the high priests were forbidden from mourning. And that instead they were supposed to take a wife in her virginity. Now, I don't know if that's biblical. I don't remember that in the Bible. Well, yeah. Now, that was my understanding. So I had been long since shunned, but when I heard about that, um, and I knew who the young lady was. Because I'm just wondering if it came, it came from the top, it sounds like. Right. So what, yeah, exactly. Basically, if there was a direction that he wanted to take the congregation, he would find an obscure passage, usually in the Old Testament, and say, okay, this principle means that I'm allowed to make this decision for everybody. So let's mm. say, so that, so that business, that was why a lot of people left, apparently, because what he did, he didn't even mourn the passing of his of his late wife Janet, but took uh, a young lady from the congregation who apparently accepted kicking and screaming, but eventually relented and they they were married and I believe they still are. So somebody 20, 30 years his junior, uh, right. basically basically just uh, out of high school. Just out of high school. And he in his fifties. And that was enough to drive a lot of people out and say, okay, that's not gonna work for me. So thankfully, some people had some shred of conscience left. Yeah, and my understanding is they got married like um, a week after he gave that sermon. You just mentioned kicking and screaming. What did you, what did you mean by that? I'm I'm told by someone in the know who who had been an ex member of Calvary and part of the protest that she cried when she found out that that's what Bob or Pastor Scott wanted to do. That she, I don't want this. I don't want. But somebody. One of her peers just said, but, but just think about it. This is the Lord's gift, and it's a blessing. And you've been anointed by God. You have a special call in your life. Don't you want that? And somebody basically, you know, using subterfuge and witchcraft to convince her to do something that was she was violently opposed to. So, so basically, her he he made the decision. Yeah. Went to her parents or whoever and right. decided, wow. Say, today's your lucky day. I'm, And he um, also, the, the child's father, he basically promoted him to a member of the leadership. Mm. Oh, and oh, and did I also tell you, yeah, you've been promoted, buddy. You're a pastor or evangelist or a teacher. Congratulations. God's, God's good, isn't he? You know, some kind of bribery, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's just revolting when you think about it. So that but, was you were saying the beginning of the end, probably of that. I think so. But I can recall when I was a member. Um, let's suppose they wanted to they wanted to retire their church's mortgage. Okay, that's a good idea. So what he did is he found some obscure passage in the Old Testament about a third tithe. There's a tithe that you give. You know, that's the first. Thing that you give in an offering. There's another one that you use for another purpose, like refreshing yourself and having, you know, a ministry for your for yourself, you know, to make yourself eat, like by praise and worship music or something like that. And the third one is so you can give it to the congregation and we'll start a fund and we'll retire our mortgage, which I believe mm-hmm. they did. They had a like a mortgage burning ceremony, but they also bought uh that fleet of Corvettes that he owns for the really? race car ministry. Whoa. And someone who, after leaving, and uh, <clears throat> one of the places I I attended was a 
Presbyterian church, which is why I think I'm Presbyterian now, because I feel like they were some of the first people to ever kind of put me back together again after I'd fallen off my ledge, you know. And uh, I still, I'm still very grateful to be a part of them. But um, they had been aware that there was this 67 fastback that was in his fleet of Corvettes, pretty mm. exceedingly rare and very, very cool car. So this Corvette assumed very expensive, very expensive. And it was apparently bequeathed to Star Scott on somebody's deathbed. He said, I want you to have this car. Now, no, way. I, I no. can't, I just can't understand that. I don't, you know, I'd have to suss that out and, uh, you know, basically vet that story, but it goes to show you what the kind of heart that he has and, and the fact that he owns that egregious largesse for himself anyway. Right. Um, and, and of course, are you getting out, an idea that it felt like he was very in it for himself? Yeah. Um, and, and in, I think it was Michelle Borstein's article in the Washington post that headline goes something like in Virginia, a powerful and polarizing pastor, and that story about his particular largesse and fiduciary wrongdoing, living off of a church credit card and things like I, those weren't facts that I knew, but I wasn't surprised when I apprehended and learned about them. Mm. Um, there's another article in the Times Mirror and the Post where they covered- That's the Loudoun Times Mirror. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Loudoun Times Mirror and the Washington Post both covered- an ATF raid where they where they basically acquired a number of large weapons and you know arms, small arms. Oh, so apartment. The, there yeah. was an ATF raid. I mean, this is having echoes of Waco and David Koresh right now. Right. <laughs> there, so now, when I when I learned about that, you know, the, the ATF found all those guns. I knew people from Calvary loved guns. In fact, I remember going on a camping trip in Blue Murray, West Virginia. And we were shooting, you know, whatever the Greek copy of an AK-47 is, the Kalashnikov, a uh, couple of 22s. And we were firing arms in the middle of some field somewhere, you know, shooting, shooting, because everybody had guns. Mm. And at, there were serious talks. In fact, he shared with the congregation, I hope this never happens, but if it does, and we're, we're, we're forced to go underground because the persecution of the world becomes too much. We have a property in some undisclosed location. I oh, think wow. it might have it might have been all in West Virginia as well, but I to be truthful, I don't remember. But they definitely alluded to having a sort of compound in the ready when at such point they decided the world persecution was too much and they had to flee. Oh, Much wow. not at all dissimilar to how Jim Jones left uh, Northern California and went to Guyana. Yeah. Okay. So they were they were definitely cooking up a Guyana situation, a Jonestown situation. And so when they um, when the ATF found all that weaponry in an apartment belonging to a Calvary Temple member, I can't say I was surprised. In right. Fact, I bet there's I bet there's more. Right, 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 so, right, right, right. Well, you know, aren't you glad I left? Right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. One of the things I remember, um, you know, I, I, well, I'm curious about one thing. What did it feel like in that moment where you were a part of sort of like the 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 protest? Did you have 
any conflicting feelings at that point or was it freeing? Like, what did it feel like when you got involved with the people who had gone through bad experiences there? It was a, it was bittersweet. I remember seeing people I hadn't seen for a very long time and thinking, wow, I'm glad you're okay. Um, there was a particular guy there that I remember we were really close at, uh, during our Calvary days and we had some and really good had- times together. And we remember, I remember having a laugh saying, hey, it's good to see you again. And I wish it could be different. But I also remember looking across the street at the congregation and some of the people getting into their cars and I'm saying, oh, isn't that so-and-so? I used to be his roommate. Isn't that, mm. that, that girl? I used to be a friend of hers. And looking at them, and they probably wouldn't say that they felt anything, but I looked at them and they looked like they were wearing chains around their ankles and they looked mm. crestfallen and they looked taciturn and they looked sad, sad. And, and pitiful. And that was heartbreaking to mm. look and think, I used to be that guy. And that's how I used to feel all every day. Although I would have told you, hey, praise God, I'm doing good. God's good. I'm I'm having a great day. The Lord's blessing me. But deep inside, I'm like, get me the hell out of here. You know? At what point, like thinking about that moment at the altar and feeling so good and feeling so accepted and belonging, what, at what moment did it flip to that kind of sadness? Well, I, I can think of like early days when I was there feeling uncertain and shaky. And I thought, well, that's just part of the experience. Of course, I feel that way. Right. But over the years, you know, when I would deal with various tr- temptations and trials, I remember thinking that feeling like, uh, I'll tell you one thing that happened to me. I was, since I played the guitar and I wanted to use that gift in ministry or somehow, and, and the church was definitely not having it. And they read it and said, you know, we don't think you're ready for this. And we want to, we want you to keep that at the altar and we want you to, you know, wait and just, you know, be in the Was word, the be idea disciple, you know. You, you, they just didn't want you to pick up the guitar or play it in the church or outside the church? What was yeah, that? a little of, a little of both really. Oh. And, um, and then at one point when it, when it was pretty clear that, okay, I think we're ready now, let's go ahead and let's start seeing what you can do. And I would take part in the worship team for a while, but I would do something that- Do you think that was about control? Yeah, it was, yeah. that's, it's, that's an experience that a lot of people can, can talk about having. And you were still under that microscope, even when you were in the ministry. And so every once in a while, they're, they're uplifting you and praising, great, man, the Lord really used you to that. That's great. And then one day you did or said something that was just off in their mind. And so then they say, Greg, um, I think we're going to have you uh, remain silent for a while and not you know, give voice in the congregation or speak up in the congregation. And, and what, what did I do? You know? Oh, you mean more, talk, talk at yeah, all. Like, right. so it was like, hush, be quiet. Yeah. You would go through experiences like that or where you're basically under their microscope being watched, unsure about whether or not you are doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Kind of like a yo-yo of affirmation. Yeah. Right. And the like, longer that went on, the worse I remember feeling, I am never going to amount to anything here. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have this life that so many people seem to be having a great time with, but I'm uh, I'm never going to be that guy because I'm one of the people that they don't like or I'm one of the people they don't trust or something, you know? And the longer that were went they, on- Were they involved in those things? Like, 
involved in who you could marry and other yeah. things like that? Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say so. I remember if if you fancied somebody and they didn't want that person to marry you, they'd, they'd find a way to discourage you really quick. And uh, yeah, apparently they had their favorites and they, were, they had their... Uh, they're outcasts too. Mm. So the so so there it was almost like it was a a subtle kind of transformation for you. I'm curious when when you left when there was that affair and they sort of admonished you for that. Do you think that they were trying to lay out some because you know when people it sounds like based on what you're saying that they almost use people's mistakes or when they were off key to take the, the, the musical metaphor, when they were off key, they use their mistakes to further control people. Do you think that's what they were aiming for in admonishing you? Probably. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to be fair, I think in their mind, they had probably thought we have been with this over and over. Greg is always having some problem. He's always having some difficulty and we can never get him to just be, to walk in lockstep with us. And now this, yeah, well, we've, we've had it, you know, Mm. I, and I can see how they might've seen it that way, frankly, because to them, they were building this, this utopia experience Mm. where they were the world's, uh, they were, they were the, the city set on the hill. Did they try to rehabilitate you from your perspective? Like, did they give you Uh, a path, like do X and we'll, will let you stay or did they ask? No, no. And and that's surprising because it's not like I was the first person to, I mean, there were members of that leadership who say they had an affair with a member of the congregation. And so they put them in, basically they, they took them out of their ministry role and made them clean the church for a while. Mm. And then after many endeavors, they were restored, you know, as long as there wasn't another repeat of the same thing, I guess, is basically what they were looking for. So there was something about you, like there was some kind of double standard. So like in a way, you you left because you were getting pushed. What Mm -hmm. did that feel like to be pushed out of this place that for a decade had been your... Yeah, I remember after I'd been there for, for so long... The strange thing is that when I was no longer welcome back and I was all alone, I remember thinking, wow, I've been through a lot, haven't I? This wasn't right, was it? I've been kind of emotionally abused, haven't I? It was like the veil. (laughs) veil I didn't know it was that bad, huh? So, yeah, I guess to be honest, it felt like uh, yeah, the scales fell off my eyes, whatever metaphor. It'd be freeing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really freeing did. in a way. Wow. And, and now, you know, the 2016 protest started, and then a couple years later, there was this other significant event, as I recall, that Pastor Scott's son, who was also, I think, named Scar- Star Scott. Yes. Jr., his, his, his wife sends an email from the way that I understand it, and I may not be remembering this right, but accusing Scott, the pastor, of molesting his two young nieces for years when he was the youth pastor at another um, uh, Pentecostal church, I think it was in California, and that he continued to molest them when he got to Virginia. And there was this quote in there. There was this quote in there that screams something like, 
they they were innocent children or they were just innocent children and you abused your power and authority yeah what so was it like to hear that 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 i don't was know it, it that i i remember um just thinking man he was more like jim jones than i even knew and thinking what an awful perversion and what a disgraceful thing and not only that but learning about just the copious lengths he went to hide that story from ever coming to light and ordering his congregation i i think star the star robert scott the second i that's his had star robert son. son yeah okay yeah so i think he, star had uh some document such as an email that would have basically had the details of that story as told from the uh, Assembly of God Church that Bob originated from in Monterey, California, I think. And um, he had the details of that story um, and that he was forbidding the congregation from ever reading that and that the young star was so zealous to protect his father that anybody who was trying to bring it to light, he would he would violently threaten them and tell them, I could ruin you. I know exactly how to hurt you and I I won't hesitate to, you know, come after you if you come after my father. Mm. So to think I'd never seen that side of them, but I should have known. That sort of like the you know, I thought, how did I not the, see that? Right? Protecting their power for for many of them was more important than yeah and i didn't know the violent links that they would go to to in order to prevent that allegation from coming out or to protect their own i remember being at one of the protests and one of those members of the calvary congregation drove their car dangerously close and skidded in a gravel pathway next to the road to basically try to frighten off some of the protesters. And I'm thinking, when I think of the story of Heather Heyer in the- uh, In Charlottesville. Charlottesville, uh, who yeah. was murdered by that man in the in the car and, and who plowed into the protesters against that Confederate yeah. monument. You know, it, I thought of that. And I thought, that's that almost happened to us. And I didn't, and I heard people from Calvary- you have to understand, people from Calvary, and I was one of them, we never cussed. We never cussed. We just, we stopped talking that way. And here they were dropping F-bombs and threatening and shouting all these invectives at us. What has happened to them? And and trying to at least scare you or yeah. possibly kill you. So to see Star go after somebody on a Facebook group threatening them with basically blackmail and violence, I thought, I didn't know that was in them. And I thought I should have known because what's in your heart, you know, the mouth, the mouth just speaks what's in your heart. I, yeah. I should have known that they were that violent and that malevolent. I, did, I, did you feel like you were, you were talking to me about like knowing, you know, the 20 year old that, that Scott married and knowing some of these younger children and Kevin O'Connor and his adopted daughter who, who is, who's who they, who alleged that he had done 
sexual and physical abuse. And, you know, before we started recording, you mentioned you even worked in the child care center with people. Did you feel like a, a sense of guilt after, when you found out about those allegations? Um, well, remorse would be closer to it. I, mm-hmm. I wondered, first of all, if, if I'd done anything to contribute to their, their fear and upbringing, because as a child care worker, we probably administered spankings uh, because they believe in corporal punishment and they believe in spanking children. And I'm pretty sure I gave out a spanking or two. And I, when I, that certainly made me feel remorse and guilt. Like I wish I, I wish I'd never laid hand on a child. Cause I, I think that's barbarous. I, I truly, I've never laid a hand on my son. He's uh he's going on 16 and we've never spanked him. We don't believe mm-hmm. in it. I, I think it's a barbarous way to, to discipline a child. So I felt a little bit of remorse because I thought, couldn't I have paid more attention and seen that something was off? Couldn't I have, you know, done something to make it make a difference? You know, mm. did he? I, I I remember hearing a story that later even a former church member tried to, or they were a member at the time, tried to secretly record a conversation with him about it. So there yeah. are clearly people as the allegations started to come out who were sort mm-hmm. of bonding together to try and address these right. members. But what, how is it that at that time you guys were raising your voices, raising your concerns, even protesting outside of the church? And, you know, I assume some people had contact information of current church members. How How is it that so few of the church members was it that they just didn't accept the allegations or did they just not find out about them? To an extent, I think that for those who remained members, they were accustomed to shunning those who left and saying, you know, they went out from us and they're not one of us. So they were accustomed to regarding them as, as enemies and under the influence of Satan or something demonic. They were accustomed to believing that they were under severe persecution from the community around them, from the world at large, so that if they heard such, they might they even they might have a bit of cognitive dissonance, but in most likely scenario, they would probably think, oh, that's just that's that's a lie. That's that's Satan trying to tell a lie and sow doubt into our, you know, that's obviously not true. And so I think that for those that remained there, the fear of betraying the the leadership is probably greater than any whisper of cognitive dissonance that they might feel. So even if they had their doubts, they would never give them voice. Mm. I, I, I remember there was some point, in the, <clears throat> it was before the 2016, 2014 stuff, the Washington Post did a um, article on on Calvary. It's like, as a former journalist, I call it the "we can't nail it, but there's something really wrong here" story. And, yeah. But it, did did you participate in any of the like with any of the if you're comfortable talking about it with any of the journalists or others who were trying to? Um, so from the Loudon Times Mirror, I did, I did. Get interviewed by uh, a former journalist there, Crystal Owens, and she um, she wrote some of my 
remarks in one of those articles, and I'm trying to re- remember. It's the one. Oh yeah, the uh, a year later, or the Calvary Temple's emotional warfare, I believe, is the the title, and I got to share uh, some of the ways that it felt to be a member and have your doubts, but not be able to speak about them. And mm-hmm. uh, they were they cited some psychological expertise in that particular article. Michelle Borstein, I believe, did some of the, the writing for the Washington Post. In fact, I think she's still their religion writer. And so she was doing research about the Calvary article, and she contacted me as well. Mm. I, I, Why did you decide to speak out? Well, at first, in Michelle's case, I was pretty hesitant, and I was a little frightened. I was fearing reprisals. I didn't know the lengths that members of the Calvary congregation would go to protect themselves. And and for all I knew, they would they would come after me or my family. I don't know if anything like that has ever taken place, but I do know that when I knew that they were violent people with violent histories and, and lots of guns. Lots of guns and they had a lot of a uh, lot of baggage. I didn't want to shake the I didn't want to risk that shaking up a hornet's nest. But then when and I guess after Crystal had reached out and some of the protests were beginning, at that point I thought, hey, I've got to stop being afraid because people deserve to know. There are people that are frightened of leaving and this might give them, this might embolden them to finally mm-hmm. make peace and, and and find a new life. And so I thought, that's that's what got me speaking. And and to say that when I heard the, the young girl's uh, allegations against uh, Kevin O'Connor, when I thought of her and I knew her as a child, I thought I cannot, I cannot let her suffer alone, and I can't. Mm. And she she may never know me, and she'll she may never see me again. But the thought that she couldn't defend herself and somebody had done those things to her, I can't, I can't just let how I feel uh, influence me, and I can't let my fear and inhibition keep me from shouting this up from the rooftops. I people deserve mm. to know. Yeah. And the church was, I know, you know, the allegations about him, you know, the beginning of his sexual abuse with his nieces starts in the, you know, late seventies or so. But one of the, one of the things, you know, I'd read was that in the eighties and the nineties, you know, Calvary, interestingly with a business name, it had, it, it was under the business name, it was doing business as Calvary, but it was like known as something like star evangelical or even evangelical enterprises. Um, But they had opened churches in Africa and several U S cities like Richmond and Laurel. Um, I used to go to that Richmond congregation to, to play guitar in their worship services. So I would drive two hours from the, you know, Northern Virginia to, to go, uh, Join their worship to that one. They didn't have one. Yeah. Wow. And and I know they drew at some point like people from all over the East Coast. You know, like wealthy people in Middleburg, right. Virginia. People, you know, who uh, to to people who could sort of like barely afford uh, food and diapers for their kids in West oh, Virginia. Yeah. And like, I, I'm just curious. Like, what what was what was the appeal like uh, my understanding is they had like 40 branch churches in in east africa and mm. and it just it just seems hard for me to understand 
how with those things going on, forget the sexual abuse, forget the financial improprieties, but just the control. Now, one part of me says, like, how could people live in an environment that's so oppressive and controlling? And then another part of me says that the world is so complex, things are so ambiguous, it's so easy to feel lost. And even though we know someone else controlling us is not healthy, like control gives us this sense of guardrails. So it's almost like the abuse itself, we want something and that abuse provides it, not a healthy version of it. But talk to me about that. If you're convinced of your own sinfulness and your low self-esteem has been lowered, lower still, <laughs> and you've basically come to no longer trust yourself, they can they can take a scripture like uh, from uh, Proverbs three thereabouts uh, that he who trusts himself is a fool. So if you have been taught, I don't make good decisions. I don't even know how to make good dis- decisions. I need the Holy Spirit, and so. I need the leadership and I need Calvary. I need their I need their wisdom because they obviously know how to live. Look at them. Look how Lord, you know, look at all those Corvette. cars, look at the houses, look at the the way of life that they lead. Don't you want that? And and so I obviously I I mean it's hard sometimes, I admit it, but they know what they're doing and I don't and I don't trust myself as far as I can throw myself, so I can't I don't know how to, to live and act, but they do. And if you start to believe, well, this is the only congregation that's teaching the truth. So, of course, we have to branch out. Of course, we need to go to all the world and preach the gospel. So, yeah, we need to open up fellowships in Africa and uh, reach out to the poor savages in in West Virginia. You know, of course we do, because the gospel's not being taught by anybody but us. We're, we've got to help them, you know? Yeah. I, I, You know, it reminds me of like, you know, in psychology, one of the things that we learn is that there's a certain type of people who narcissists gravitate toward, right? Like people who are downtrodden, people who That's right. are isolated, who feel alone, or even people who just are dependent and they need a lot of... Um, you know, feedback to feel loved. But there's also this other side of it that we talk about less where certain kinds of people, you know, like who might need structure or order or for the world to make sense, or they need that love, gravitate toward narcissists because their overconfidence, their arrogance is interpreted as strength and it gives people a sense of safety. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's it explains a lot uh, the cult like behavior of our former president and his uh, and his devoted following. Yes, yes. they follow many of those same. In fact, many of the people of my of my former congregation are probably uh, in his thrall because what they're what ultimately attracts someone like that is power or the belief that this is some kind of uh, a high achiever. And they do give the appearance of being a high achiever narcissist, that is. And uh, when Star Scott lived off of the wealth of his company, of his company or congregation, and and gave the appearance of being rich and wearing, you know, the, the jewelry and 
getting the expensive vacations and and the and and yeah the cars always having some kind of a really expensive car to drive around then people look at that and well that's success those are the trappings of success and uh say to say nothing of the fact that he's you know teaching every sunday and he's got that powerful charismatic draw you know seeing the outward things gives you the and so, yeah, everybody thinks that's the alpha male or that's the lead dog and I should be following them. And uh, that I guess what attracts someone is having no sense of their own worth and their own, their own moral compass their, and their own locus of control, basically. And so, of course, that's, that's who the Lord wants me to follow because I, I don't control myself. My locus of control is from the Lord and the Holy Spirit is guiding me. That's who he's guiding me to because look at the fruit, right? I yeah. can see from the outside, I can see that that guy is clearly walking with the Lord, right? He's, and it feels like a gift, right? Like this yeah. sense that you're being being granted this kind of... Right. And when you live your whole life thinking that your locus of control comes from some supernatural place, you have that sense of calling or belonging kind of dealt into you and it sort of confirms what you think is happening and, and you believe, oh yeah, I, I knew I needed to find some place where they taught the word of God. Oh, there's one. And so of course you think, yeah, I, uh, this is it. This is, this must be it. And because your feelings and thoughts validate it and, uh, and they, and they're only too happy to help validate that feeling for you, you know? If it, I, I'm, I'm just curious for you, have you been able to find since leaving, you know, you mentioned the thing about not being able to read the Bible for so many years. Ever. Right. Have you been able to find any kind of religion? I have, community? you know, and I'll tell you, I, I think I was, I think I told you this earlier when my, my wife and I first met, we, we actually... Uh, participated in and that was pagan. you met her after the church right yeah i met her after i went to church after i'd left and we tried we went to neo-pagan stuff for a while because they they're nice people and they they have kind of a supernatural uh, also, belief. yeah they've but, got that they've got the charismatic piece but almost like totally the opposite <laughs> right it's a little bit new agey and stuff and then i remember leaving that and going to an extreme where i started following um the the new atheists like uh christopher hitchens and sam harris mm -hmm. reading those and okay well that's it i was wrong about god all along i don't believe a bit of it i was i should have been rationalist and i remember shaking hands with dr michael Shermer or james randy and they are very very nice people truly they are and very intelligent those are two leaders in that movement right okay. and james randy used to be a, a musician i mean a magician and uh, he'd appear on like the Tonight Show and stuff like that. And um, Daniel Dennett, you know, and they're all very intelligent and they seem smarter than me. And, you know, that left me kind of hanging. I thought, okay, it is not rational to follow supernatural voices in your head. I admit that. And I can't prove that God exists with some kind of scientific rigor. But I also know something, something about me, I resonate with that so well, and I'm so happy. Well, I read a book, and the only, I, I'm ashamed to say I forget the author's name, but she coined a term, religious trauma syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
religious trauma syndrome, as if it never had a name before. So if you've experienced life in Calvary Temple where you used to listen to secular music and now suddenly you don't because now you're a Christian. Uh, and if you've ever gone through that kind of extreme religious faith and indoctrination, it leaves a, a mark on you. It really does. So finding my way out of that through all those different kinds of associations and finally just remembering, you know, you know who the people were that really reached out to me after I'd left Calvary Temple and felt lost at sea? It was the Presbyterian Church. So I went to my local, I went Burke Presbyterian and started attending services there and getting involved with the community and and um, getting to know the people, singing in the choir. Whatever. So you found a healthy Yeah. Home. And what I discovered is well, going from this extreme, like, for example, religious affiliation in a place like Calvary, it's assumed that uh, – I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest, but here it goes. Uh, it's assumed that you're also a Republican, you know. If you're a Christian, you must be a conservative. So, of course, you're a Republican. And I did, in fact, feel, you know, okay, that's where. But in a place like this, where people probably listen to NPR and they're probably liberal, <laughs> and, it, and to hear their perspective and think, man, I didn't know the half of it. It and, reminds me of know? something. <laughs> and when I was growing up, my dad, um, he, one of the jobs that he had was working at the Smithsonian, and he was, he had met this scientist there who was also very religious. And he said, you know, like, well, how is it, you know, do you balance? Cause my dad's, you know, religious, but how do you balance your belief in religion? They were talking about Genesis and God made the earth in X amount of time, you know, basically in, in a couple of days versus the scientific theories. And I think this guy was a um, astrophysics physicist and he said, religion and science are answering two different questions. And the thing that struck me about that story, and I've really had this experience since, since, and I feel lucky in every church I've been in, there have been Republicans and Democrats, there have been liberal and conservatives. And what I found is it's almost like being on the same boat in the river. If the boat is the church and the river is the the journey in your relationship with God. And some people look out the left window and see issues that social issues and other issues like that, that, you know, they're very conservative about other people look out the other side of the boat. So we're still on the same river yeah. looking at different sides and they see the homeless, they see the hurting and that, and it was, it was very powerful for me that the idea that, you know, Faith is not, you know, you can't prioritize what God or what your church has asked you to do because there are many things that fall on both sides yeah. of the aisle. Yeah, yeah I, I think that it's it's important to to understand people are complex and they're complicated and no one truly makes every decision through by means of reason and rationality and or even cognitive experience there are things that are that are difficult to, to place and, and and to to quantify and define and that religion sometimes endeavors to answer them and maybe they they they're right maybe they're wrong 
it's but science is not the opposite of faith in my estimation science is a tool science is a is a tool by which we understand and apprehend the universe and its workings it doesn't it it can't explain the feeling somebody has if they pray or if they meditate or if they walk outdoors and feel the the earth all around them they, nobody can put that into you know consciousness is actually one of the most difficult things to quantify right and i don't i that's why i don't think it's it's good to be certain about something if you have enough evidence for it but even even then you can't really embrace certainty and right so I, I, I so, guess so you've I, I love this that bumper sticker that says, uh, I'm a militant atheist. I don't know. Or I'm a militant agnostic. I don't know. And you don't either. Because <laughs> you know? you've um, almost, it sounds like you've, you've, you've moved from a space of needing everything to be certain, right? And that's what the pastor gave you. Yeah. To a place where you're okay with the idea that you don't have all the... Or do yeah. you need all the answers? I can definitely live with my doubts and my my questions because yeah. that's part of the human experience. In fact, it's not a sign of lacking faith or anything. It basically means I'm just curious. Right. Yeah. That uh, One of the things I wanted to ask you just as we start to wind down is what message would you have for, you know, the, the people – who were harmed in the church, like those little girls who may have been sexually abused, the people who are still in the church, and maybe even for the broader group of people who have experienced religious trauma or trapped in the middle of some kind of religious trauma. Mm, yeah. There are times when I can think that as a member of Calvary and having doubts and inklings that something was wrong that i would kind of tamp those down and not listen to them or i would see people who had left the church and noticed that they seemed a lot freer and a lot happier than people around me that i had and while people in evangelical christianity are taught to listen to a still small voice I can't help but think you only listen to the still small voice that you're told to listen to. And you don't, you don't listen to what's inside and those things that are warning signs that you're in pain and that you need to pay attention to it. So I say, I would say, are you sure you're listening to that still small voice? Because it's been speaking to you for a while. And you have, you have been too afraid to let it talk to you and minister to you and warn you about impending danger. Mm -hmm. What do you hope for the victims? Well, um, I hope that those who come to their aid to help them have their interests at heart and not their own. In other words, I'm glad you came forward with this because I've been angry with Calvary Temple for a long time. And it's about time that it's like, how about uh, to that young girl who brought those allegations? I'm glad you told me. How can I help you? And so to them, 
I know that their their pain is real and that they've been hurt and that they're being listened to. But when the protests are over and nobody's there, I hope they find I hope they reach out and find that family or that friendship that they've always truly wanted and need a sense of peace and belong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I wanted to give you a chance before we stop to just sort of share, like for me, one of the interesting things about this, and I know places like Calvary, Calvary are extremes. There's no doubt that they're extremes, but there's like two things that sort of stand out for me. One is while they are extremes, there are probably many more of them than most people know. Mm-hmm. And and other people may experience religious trauma that's just as bad and less less you know less problematic organizations and some people may experience religious trauma you know in different ways and i i want to let you close out on whatever you want but i'm just i'm really curious about like what kind of how you got to this point of like health and healing you know, and I'll, I'll just say something, you know, personal, that when we first met, and I, I I, think you'd probably agree, but tell me if I'm wrong, you seemed very broken. And then years right. later, you didn't seem broken anymore. Uh, so, yeah, when about not terribly long before I met you, there was I was also working with a, a therapist, and after hearing my story, she said, you seem lost. And that's exactly how I felt. And so to, to get from there to here, uh, it was a journey. But the things that helped me were my wife, my family, my community, and reaching out to other people. One of the, the hallmarks of, if you want to call it religious trauma sy- syndrome, and I happen to think that that's an apt title, that feeling of I've been a I've been through something that no one else has been through and nobody understands. Well, I'm here to tell you a lot of people have been through what you have and they do understand and they they need you and you need them. I don't think I got through these things alone. I think of those Presbyterian ministers that I I was a member of who told me you didn't know the half of it. Actually, Calvary Temple was even worse than you know and here's why and here are facts that prove it. That helped me immensely to to meet people who had been through trials and who could also help me. I didn't I didn't recover by myself. I wasn't uh, alone, and you won't recover by yourself. You need friends. You need a group. You need therapy. And don't be ashamed of any of those things. You need those things, and they they will help, and you will heal, even if it takes a long time. Wow. All right. Greg, thanks for all of that. This yeah, is like a powerful. Jason. I appreciate it. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, you know from my recent episode that you know religion and belonging and sense of community are hugely important to me. And one of the things that I can say about this conversation is that I find when I think of my difficult moments, whether it has to do with religion or mental health or other things, I do think of you often and how inspiring you are to me, just given everything that you've been through, that you've 
gotten to a place, and I know every day is not perfect, but you've gotten to a place where you've found some sense of peace and wholeness is a reminder sometimes that whatever I'm going through. Wow. Yeah, I really so. appreciate you saying that. I, 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 one thing I have tried to learn over the years is that I'm definitely an introvert, if nothing else, and that's great. It, it's a, it helps me see the world a much different way than most people do. But one thing that I have come to understand, and I think it comes from my life as a, as a faith, as a person of faith, as a Christian, as a religious person, is that you need to make yourself available. Because you don't know how much your story means to someone else or your testimony means to someone or just be, be being there. Oh, man, I'm so glad Greg's here, you know, and, yeah. and not having any idea why. Sometimes it's just your ears. Yeah. Sometimes you're there to listen and sometimes, you know, you're there to speak and sometimes you're there to be silent. But you need to be there. You need to right. you need to let your life uh, become a part of someone else's. This is Jason Blair. And this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all again next week.